Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, thank you for attending this lecture uh, at the Institute. For those of you who are new to IWP, it's a graduate school, uh, school of national security and international affairs. Uh, they offer five master's programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more, uh, you can speak to some of the staff at the conclusion of the event. Uh, this is a sixth annual uh, Brian Kelly Memorial Lecture. Uh, the passing of uh, Brian Kelly was a grave loss to the Institute and to our country. Uh, his knowledge, experience, and dedication were a level hard to match. In his time at IWP, he brought his own knowledge, as well as the knowledge of experts in the intelligence community to help students gain as much as they possibly could from their classes in their time at IWP. This lecture is meant to honor his memory uh, and continue the tradition of providing students with the opportunity to hear uh, from experts in their given career fields uh, within the intelligence community. Uh, just to add a little bit of context uh, for those who don't know about uh, how this lecture started, uh, Brian Kelly uh, taught here for several years. Uh, he taught a course uh, and passed away, uh, unfortunately, in the middle of, uh, or at the beginning, I believe, of the semester. Um, so he um, had the unfortunate experience of being accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was accused of, of treason. Uh, he was originally thought to be uh, the spy that ended up being Robert Hansen, who was his counterpart in the FBI, who would have been his counterpart uh, in the FBI. And he, he suffered uh, a hellish experience going through that, that whole process of clearing his name. Um, and uh, while he was here, he liked to talk about that experience openly and honestly. Um, and he wanted one of his main goals, aside from educating students um, and others who came here, was to make sure that um, what happened to him, how he was treated, um, and his ordeal never happened to anyone else again. Um, so uh, without further ado, I will introduce um, our speaker today. Uh, it's uh, he's Dr. David Charnley. He's a, a medical doctor. He's the medical director and founder of, of Roundhouse Square Counseling Center in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, he specializes in anxiety, mood disorders, couple and family therapy, as well as attention deficit disorder. In addition to his, his usual practice, he has treated personnel from within the intelligence community. As a result of his unusual circumstances, he's had the opportunity to join the defense team uh, of his first spy case, Earl Pitts. Uh, subsequently, Plato uh, Kacharis, the attorney, uh, the attorney for Robert Hansen, invited uh, Dr. Charney to join his defense team, uh, which added a further dimension to his experience. With the addition of uh, his third spy case, uh, the Brian Reagan case, Dr. Charney, or Charney avoided, I'm sorry, Dr. Charney further deepened his knowledge of the psychological nuances of captured spies. As a member of their defense team, Dr. Charney was perceived by insider spies as an understanding and supportive figure, which lowered their defensive mindsets and provided a truer picture of their inner lives. Many common assumptions of spy motivation were brought into question by Dr. Charney's work. Uh, the, the, by Dr. Charney's work, Dr. Charney elaborated on his findings in Part One of his white paper entitled "True Psychology of the Insider Spy." 
part two of the white paper entitled NOR, a white paper proposed, uh, proposed mm -hmm. a new policy for improving national security by fixing the problem of insider spies. Uh, and it lays out Dr. Charney's innovative and perhaps controversial recommendation for making use of what he's learned to better manage the problem of insider spies uh, we still have today. Uh, to educate and promote these concepts and ideas, he founded NOR for USA, a nonprofit organization. Without further ado, sir. Thank you for coming this evening. It's a cold, hard, wintry day in Washington again, so I appreciate you coming. And just before I got up to speak, moments ago, a surreal, strange experience that caused me to shiver in my boots. My phone rang. And I look, you know how an iPhone will tell you who's on the other end? And I look and I see Brian Kelly, NCIX, National Counterintelligence Exec. Wait a minute, what? Is Brian calling from up there? It was a little scary. I had to answer the phone not knowing what it was. It actually was Trish Kelly calling, his wife. She was calling from Florida to apologize for not being able to come to this talk tonight, which was a bit of a relief to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start talking about Brian, because Brian was one of my most dear friends. I met him so many years ago, probably connected here at IWP. And we spent hours and hours talking together. He, even though I was already coming up with what I'll call semi-controversial ideas about the motivation of insider spies, listened to me and he actually liked what he was hearing. So much so that he supported my efforts to discuss them in various IC audiences. I can't tell you how many places he invited me to. Some of them were deep black places or inside the CIA. So he was a friend a dear friend and a supporter, and we got together, we talked on so many things. I had an experience that I think emulates what happens when anybody within the intelligence community hears about somebody that they know in their own organization has turned out to be an insider spy. It was oddly enough, on a thing called the Spy Cruise that was put together by one of your faculty, David Major. David Major was the person from whom I took a course on counterintelligence to deepen my knowledge. 
It was quite an experience to do that here at IWP. That's how come I feel so honored to be invited for this talk tonight. <coughs> As a background to this next little bit that I want to mention, and I'll describe how I marched along in terms of getting experiences with insider spies. My second insider spy that I got to meet with was Robert Hansen. So there I am meeting with Robert Hansen in jail for two hours a week for, it turns out, an entire year. And I'm a friend, a good friend, of Brian Kelly. There was no connection between the two of them, to my knowledge. But after Hansen was captured for a while and I was already into the case, I saw an article in the Washington Post about somebody in the CIA that had mistakenly been fingered to be the spy that Robert Hansen was. But they didn't mention the name. Anyhow, back to the spy crews, and we're in the Caribbean, and we're in the water, uh, and there are skates and large creatures swimming around us, and there's Dave Major. And I, br I brought it up. I said, Dave, uh, you know, I saw this article before we left on the cruise that mentioned there was somebody in the CIA that had been the mistakenly fingered to be the spy that Robert Hansen was. Do you ever know who that is? He said, you don't know? I said, no, no, who is it? He said, it's Brian Kelly. It was like somebody punched me in the stomach. I swear to God, I couldn't even talk. It hurt. And, you know, it didn't take but a microsecond for me to know that this was a total impossibility. If you knew Brian, you wouldn't need to be told one way or the other. Because he was that sort of a person that you realize as a rich, lovely, balanced personality. He was always doing nice things for people. He was generous with his time and his energy. And it wasn't thin, it was deep. It was very deep. So in one fraction of a moment, I learned from Dave Major the craziness of thinking that Brian could be a spy, that I'm actually seeing the actual spy <laughs> every week for two hours. I mean, how could such a crazy connection occur in the world? But in Washington, these things happen. <laughs> And I told you about the punch in the gut that I felt. I've talked to any number of people that used to be in components where, like, Walker worked or Ames worked. Name the, the big spy names that you know about. And they all are still hurt and shocked and disgusted and feel betrayed. And many of them use the same terminology that I've just used, a punch in the gut, when they found out about it, okay? So there I was, except I knew that this was a terrible error. 
Now, what about Brian? It took a long time for him to get his name clear. There was a lot of resistance. The, the FBI people working on the case were just so convinced by everything they came across. And nowadays, these uh, terms are popular. Confirmation bias, you've heard that? So everything that came along was proving that Brian indeed was the spy. Even things that proved that he wasn't a spy proved that he was a spy, except he was a master spy. Because he could twist those things to make you believe that he wasn't the spy. Huh? <laughs> There's a Yiddish term that comes from German called Mensch. It literally means just man. But in the Yiddish flavor, it is a very rich, complicated description. There is no other high accolade that exists than being called a mensch. That means that you're a balanced, generous, wise, deep, lovely person. And it's established over years. That was Brian Kelly. So for me to be invited to give this talk tonight means so much to me, because he meant so much to me. The title of this paper referred to my third white paper, the talk tonight. I gave that a lot of thought, and I decided I'm going to alter that a bit. Because to me, I've now that I've completed the third one, I started to think about how my thoughts and ideas evolved over time. Because I think, for any of the students in this audience, that's not a bad way to introduce how things develop and evolve over time. You don't figure this stuff out right away. And integral to the evolution of the thought is also the discovery of what I would call compelling logic. It's important to have a, a train of logic that builds from one thing to another thing. It doesn't immediately descend into your mind in one piece. Now, I gotta say, everything that I mentioned to you comes from the experience of a person who is not an intelligence community insider. I'm not an insider. I never got employed by the IC. Never worked for an intelligence agency. That doesn't mean I didn't have a lot of experiences connected with the IC. Because I did my time in the Air Force, for starters, after my residency. Two years, one month, three days, 12 hours, and seven minutes. <laughs> a few of the people that I saw because I was at Andrews Air Force Base for my second year were from NSA. So I got a little taste of those kinds of people. And when I wanted to uh, get out to establish my private practice, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to stick with this sort of material to some degree by finally about becoming a consultant to CIA, because I knew I'd be in Northern Virginia. 
So I sent in for an application to do that once I set up my practice. I got a thing that was about that thick. They wanted to know everything about me from the day I was born. They wanted to know about my mommy and daddy, my toilet training, name it. <laughs> I didn't have the time or the energy at that time of my life because I was starting a private practice. And I was very busy, so I, reluctantly I had to say, well, you know, I'll have to wait on that, maybe catch up with it later. And I started to flesh out my group practice that I started to build in, in uh, Old Town Alexandria. I bought an office building. I didn't know anything about business or office buildings, and I learned terminology like feeding the alligator. <laughs> what does that mean? That means meeting your mortgage payment every month. <laughs> well, if you don't have to feed the alligator, you have to set a lot of activities going. You have to hire people, get new patients to come in, make stuff happen. And I have to do that. I just have to do it. Well, I topped out after a while. I had all my offices coming and all this. And then I get one more call. It's a young social worker who drops a name on me. It was the brother I never had. He was the person who was in my psychiatry residency, the co-chief resident. And she was related in some way by marriage. And when she mentioned all that, I had to just give her an interview. How could I not do that, even though I was full? I met with her. Her name was Judy. And she was everything you would want to have on your staff. She was smart, engaging, personable, intelligent, experienced, attractive. Name a nice thing. She was it. So I just figured, all right, I got to get Judy into my team. We'll make room for her at the table. Nine months later, I got a letter from CIA saying, you are now qualified to receive referrals from our agency. What? How, well, how did that happen? I didn't know I hadn't applied. I didn't know I was being investigated, if I was or not. Who knew? It took a while to figure it out. Judy's mommy worked for the CIA. <laughs> Judy's mommy stood up their first employee assistance program. Judy's mommy took it on her own to put me into the pipeline. And I wouldn't be talking with you today if that hadn't happened. So that was my entree, my immersion into the world of the intelligence community. Not by being an employee, but rather by being a consultant to people that were referred to me. And I got to meet people from all over CIA. After a while, I started to think of them as the different tribes that exist within the CIA. There are other case officers. You can just picture what those guys are like, and some women. Then there are the analyst types that are kind of like PhD professor people. And then there's the DST, the geeky engineering guys. And on and on. There were lots of these different tribes, and I got to meet all these people and learn a hell of a lot. Now, they were trained, and so was I, not to ever ask or bring up anything 
classified. They knew that. I knew that. So, what I absorbed was how they were as people, what the dynamics were at the office, various things that were not classified, certain trade crafty things that were not classified. It was just that sort of an experience, but it gave me a lot of a feel for what's going on inside there. And I also had, at that time, a number of doctors, psychiatrists, that were moonlighters in our practice. What does that mean? They were government psychiatrists that didn't want to lose their skills of doing treatment, because their roles as government psychiatrists was not to do that, but rather to evaluate, to adjudicate, to refer, all this kind of administrative stuff. And they didn't want to lose their hand. So they would come to a place like mine, and we would, they would have a limited practice, let's say in the nighttime. Uh, that's why they call them moonlighters, right? And uh, I, I had a whole string of them. One of them was a guy named Larry, and uh, he worked for the State Department. Cool. Except that six, seven weeks later, he comes up to me in the evening and says, David, I have something to tell you. Yeah, Larry? Um, I don't work for the State Department. Oh? I work for CIA. Oh? He figured out, because I was seeing enough CIA cases, that it was safe to bring that up with me. Well, that meant that we could chat with each other about stuff. Two months later, again, Larry says, David, I have something to tell you. Uh, yeah, Larry? I was playing squash with a lawyer friend of mine this weekend. And the, that friend of mine said, we have a very interesting case that came into our firm. We'd like you to consult on it. So Larry says, yeah, um, what is it? is an FBI special agent who turns out to be a KGB spy. Oh, Larry says, this is indeed very interesting. But I can't do it. It's a conflict of interest. I work for the Fed. But I think I know somebody might be able to help you. Well, that was me. That is how, through all these weird accidents, think about Judy, think about Larry, I'm winding up to see Earl Pitts in the Alexandria Detention Center. I meet with Nina Ginsburg, the attorney, with mixed feelings, I must say. Because you, you work with people from an agency, you develop a loyalty and attachment, and the idea of working with somebody <coughs> who has betrayed the people that you're working with that's not nice. On the other hand, I knew enough about all this stuff that I knew that there was not a whole lot of knowledge about the psychology and dynamics of what goes on in somebody who crosses the line. <coughs> I thought, well, I just got to look into it. Nina Ginsburg has her own mixed feelings. She thinks she could make use of uh, a psychiatrist on her defense team and 
And she's telling me stuff that gets me rather concerned about Earl Pitts. I haven't met him yet. But he is apparently quite depressed. And the more she's telling me about this, the more I'm thinking, whoa, this sounds a bit like, a bit suicidal. Uh, how would I manage that if, if he's in jail and I don't have limited powers to, to treat? So I'm already thinking about this, even though we haven't signed up with each other. And then there was the other thing, is that she had a very limited budget. You know, they do, uh, government pays for defense and all that, but it's a limited budget. She could uh, afford to have me come in just two or three times to meet with him. <coughs> and, I'm, and all this stuff was in my mind, and I'm thinking, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, I w it's going to take a whole lot more contact than two or three times. Otherwise, what's the use of it? And I solved the problem of money right away with Nina by explaining that my fee for these visits would be nothing, pro bono. To me, it was more of a quest for trying to maybe make a contribution to our country and national security, if what I learned would be helpful. And I also was thinking, how could I frame this to Earl Pitts, whom I've not met yet, so that that could happen? And I was thinking about what I know about dealing with suicidal people in my own practice, which is you've got to give people something tangible and important that makes their life still seem worthwhile and productive and has a future component to it. And I thought, well, maybe if I said to Earl Pitts that if he would consider opening himself up to me so that I could understand what was in his mind and how it evolved, that that would be a way for him to find a meaning and purpose for himself, and in a partial way atone for what he had done, the bad things. And I did present that to him after I met with him one time, second time I met with him, and he looked at me and just for a beat didn't say anything and then he said I'll be your guinea pig and he did and that's how I got thrown into the world of trying to understand the psychology of the insider spot and that was an intensive experience it was close to a couple of hours a week for a whole year and from that, I started to develop my concepts and ideas about the unfolding psychology of the insider spot. One of the things that I needed to do to help me understand it better, because I knew what my limitations were, was that somehow I found out about this newish institution called Institute for World Politics which is where you are right now. It was in the early days of it. And there was a course being offered on counterintelligence by David Major. I took David Major's course. 
there were things about him that were very interesting. So among the things that I'll mention this evening would be the, some of the heroes that I considered shaped my experiences in this field. Dave Major would be one of them because he had passion. I've run across other people who are into the world of trying to understand this stuff from the IC. And there's a shared thing that I have not run across in many other fields, and that is passion. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that Dave Major says or he would need, but to have that passion about it, that's special. And I'm going to talk about a hero. I'm going to add one other one for right now, and he's sitting <coughs> in the second row, and that's John Lenkowski. Why? Because he had an idea and a vision, and against all the odds and the barriers and the difficulties and the practical obstacles, he stuck with it. And look what it is today. So you're a hero too. Now, I mention that because I have a special feeling for people who take on tough things and stick with that for a long period of time. Because when I stepped into this stuff, I realized that nothing would come quickly. And I needed inspiration from other people who had that same sort of drive. And that shaped what I did. Now I mentioned that I was not an insider in the IC. But I came to think about that in a, in a higher level. What, what about that is interesting. And I, it turns out in many fields of knowledge, progress is made, not, is made within the field, but sometimes there are people that, if you think about Venn diagrams, you know, the circles that sort of semi-overlap each other, and there's always a few people that are right where they touch two circles. Two crazy, unconnected fields, and yet the person who has one foot in one field, one foot in the other, on the boundary, sees things that neither of the people see in the other field. They just happen to occupy that special little place. And if they run with the idea, then new interesting things develop. And I'd like to think that that's my story too. Because I was a psychiatrist, and still am, I've been that for over 40 years, but I had my special immersion into spy psychology in the way that I have described to you. <coughs> and I wanted to make sense of it. I wasn't thinking about writing a paper for starters. Uh, actually, somebody asked me to, uh, actually, Bert knows that it was Jennifer Sims. I was attached a bit with um, the Georgetown group. And uh, the two of you were working on your book, your books on intelligence. And writing a chapter for the book came up uh, as an interesting idea. And it kind of pushed me to begin to pull together my ideas in a, a more organized way. That I, 
that didn't work out exactly for me being in the book, but it actually got me propelled to write the very first paper that I wrote, which I called immodestly, True Psychology of the Insider Spy. And in it, I tried to gather stuff that I learned from my experience with Earl Pitts, as well as all the stuff that I learned from Dave Major in the course that I took here. Now, you have to know Dave Major with his passion and used to teaching graduate students, assigned a stack of books and readings that was about three and a half feet tall. And my wife Diane at the time was used to that. She had a PhD in international relations, so I know they would grind away at stacks of books. I, I never did that. But medical school, you know, you would read one really nasty, thick book, and that would be it, you know. And you learn a lot on the wards, but you wouldn't have to, like, accumulate so much reading. But I had to do that for Dave Major. But that exposed me to really nearly all the cases that had come up for uh, understanding from the end of World War II to the present time. So even though I had dealt with only one case personally, who was a spy, Earl Pitts, I had studied all the other ones and I could see the connections as I was thinking through how to understand all this. And I came up with ideas. Now, one of them had to do with the fact that over 90% of spies are men, males. Well, that's not a small thing. It's a high number. What does that mean? Well, I'm a doctor, so one of the things I'm very proud of is that I discovered the genetic marker for spies. <laughs> it's the Y chromosome. <laughs> but I know about male psychology. Hey, I've been a shrink all these years, and there's one thing that is really true, and that is male pride and ego. That's what guys have. Male pride and ego. And it's far more sensitive than we like to let on. It's not that women don't understand this about their men, they do. <laughs> you all know that, you've had brothers and fathers and all that. There's something unique about male psychology. And there's a whole lot to understand in terms of what people over to spy because of knowing that. So one of the first things that I pulled together was what I called the core psychology with somebody crossing the line. And here it is. Short statement. An intolerable sense of personal failure as privately defined by that person. What does that mean, the last part? You can look at somebody, some guy's life and say, okay, I, I see it, you know, this didn't work, and then you kind of screwed up this thing, and that's so, only so-so, but, uh, but this is all right, and that's all right. You know, it balances out, it's not that bad. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what he thinks, 
about himself inside. And if he feels that he is not measuring up to his own expectations, he feels inside like a failure. But he will not let you know it, because that would be revealing too much. But it will eat at him, eat at him. He's got to do something about it. Now, with some guys, they'll go to the bottle and drink. Other guys will get just plain depressed. Other guys will have affairs. Name a thing. Guys inside the intelligence community have other choices that they can make. It has to do with context. If you're feeling really bad and miserable inside about yourself, one way to deal with it is to say, no, it's not me, it's not me. It's those bastards outside, the, those people that screwed me. Now, I'm going to get, get back at them. Do we know this is a psychology that comes up a lot? Yeah, we do. Have you heard the term going postal? Oh, yeah. Guy has bad things happen, shows up one day with an AK-47, blows away some people in his office and the boss. Later on, you find out that maybe his wife was having an affair, or his kids were in trouble, or in jail, or selling drugs, name the thing. He didn't get promoted. So all these things aided him, and he had to deal with it in a way to kind of unload the sense of failure. But if you're in the IC, you have one other choice. You can say, this place where I work has not done me right, and I'm going to, there's a way that I can get back at that. I can cross the line. So, that was my core psychology. Now I'm going to mention when I ran into people who would ask me, well, you, you work with these spies, you know, oh, you're doing a, a, a new profile, a little gleam in the eye. No, no, I'm not doing a profile. You know what? I don't believe in profiles. I do not believe in profiles. Now, why do I say that? A profile is like a still picture. You have a bunch of things, this, that, that, and the other is there. All right. But I don't believe in that. I believe in the unfolding movie of a person's life, how things unfold. That's far more important. Now think about it. People who join the IC, are they special? You bet they are. They've spent years preparing. They know they have to get good grades, they have to be majors in political science, or this, or engineering, whatever you want. They have to apply, they have to wait, they have to go through all kinds of stuff to get in. It's a whole lot of hurdles you have to pass through. And psychological screening and everything else. Generally speaking, the IC does a very good job of screening. So we're talking about inherently upper-level people that are good people. So now the, the curious thing is what takes a good person 
and transforms them into a bad person along the way. Not at the beginning. If you caught them at the beginning with bad information, you wouldn't take them in the first place. No, this happens later. Very often years later. What happened? That was the interesting mystery. So beyond just letting go of a profile concept, I had to think in terms of what I knew from my practice and other things, and I called it the stages, the ten life stages of the insider spot, because that gave a sense of flow, like a movie unfolded. And I'll walk you through that quickly. Stage one, sensitizing stage. Growing up, let's say in a harsh home life experience. Oh, you see that? And right away you're going to say, forget that one. Let's look at the next resume. No, you're not going to do that. Why? If you did that, 85% of people in DOD, the IC, law enforcement, would have to be let go. Because they've all been through crap growing up. They come out of it different, though. It didn't kill them. It made them have a sense of personal mission that they got hit in these bad ways and they're going to protect other people from experiencing harm in their own way, whether it's DOD, law enforcement, whatever. So they convert the bad thing into a good thing. So even though I label that the sensitizing stage, I'm not giving too much credence for that to say anything about what happens later just is part of the story. Second stage is different. That's when people go through times that are ultra-rough and hard. People can have bad life experiences that just wear them down. I think about this as the bell-shaped curve of life. We all know about that. There are people and for one end of the bell-shaped curve that everything just goes well for them. It's an intact family they're in, they have a fair amount of wealth, everybody's reasonably sane, <laughs> they go to nice private schools, they get into Yale, then it's off to med school, law school, and then they meet a gorgeous movie star girl and they get married and two beautiful little kids and I hate them because <laughs> that's not my life <laughs> then there's all the rest of us kind of in the middle and then at the other end are the people where whatever they do crashes and burns they can't take a walk down the street without stepping in <laughs> Nothing goes right for them. There are such people. We all know such people. And if you're looking at a large intelligence community agency with lots of people, you have the law of large numbers, there's going to be some people at that wrong end of the bell-shaped curve. And they are ones where you can imagine that if things went a certain way, that, that could tip them over. And I came up with my own term. I ripped it off, of course. Yeah. Um, but I called it 
a psychological perfect storm experience. When too many bad things happen overlapping in the same short period of time. And you know what? And all the people that I read about, nearly all, in the half year or so before they cross the line to do whatever they're going to do, you can see these indicators, these bad things pile up. So now that is, is, is significant. The next stage that I talk about is a, a crisis stage. I call it a personal bubble psychology. That's when somebody has been so messed over by too many bad things happening that they are not thinking straight anymore. And I invented a story that kind of conveyed that. Because everybody sitting here, I'm just, I just know you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, that, that could happen to somebody else, but not me. No, no, no. All right, so I, I invented a story. Guy comes home. Nobody's home. There's a letter on the kitchen table. From his wife. I'm sorry to tell you that I just can't be with you anymore. It's over. I know this is shocking, but I'm out of here. What? 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 The phone rings. It's a neighbor three houses down. She's saying, I hate to pass this news to you, but you probably didn't know it, but you're your wife has run off with your best friend, George. Your best friend, mind you. Oh my God, oh my God. There's a knock on the door. It's the police. They have your teenage son. He's been caught for selling drugs in the school. Oh my God, you deal with that? The phone rings again. It's your daughter at college. Yep, she's pregnant. <laughs> Oh, there's another letter there on the table. It's from the IRS. You're being audited. <laughs> another phone call from the doctor. You know that test that he did on you? Uh, I'm sorry to tell you that it came out positive. You're going to have to come in. We uh, know how to treat it now, radiation and chemo. Now, if you had all that happen, would that rattle you, no matter how cool you thought you were? I think so. What's the threshold for anybody to be rocked by stuff like that? It varies. Some people are tougher, some less so. But it's going to do that to people. And they will not think clearly. And they will be re reaching for something that could be somehow to save themselves, some big idea, some rescue thing. And if you're in the IC, and you're experiencing it in this sort of a fashion, you might have an epiphany, a crazy idea, but to you it makes tremendous sense, that, gee, if you only crossed the line and did this and that, it would solve this problem, that problem, and that, and I'd get back to them here, and I had more money here, and blah, 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 blah. It all makes perfect sense in your crazy adult mind at that time. And that motivates you, because you want that solution. 
your life is going to hell and you want something to fix it fast. That's what people will experience and they're not thinking straight at that time. So let's pretend that one of these people that I'm talking about figures out, yeah, he's going to cross the line. Don't think that's so easy, mind you. You think it's easy to be picked up by another intelligence service like KGB? They're not stupid. You've got to really prove to them that you have the goods, that you're legitimate and all that. It takes a lot of work, more than you would think. Few of these people volunteer immediately and get picked up. But let's say that this guy succeeds in getting picked up. Well, now you're into the next stage. It's kind of post-recruitment and you're in a state of euphoria. Why? You pulled it off. You did it. By God. You have fixed your life. You got this thing going. And all those people at work that didn't give you respect, hey, this guy, he's really a cool guy, he thinks you're the greatest. He thinks you're smart, intelligent, sophisticated, uh, that you're going to do great things, you're going to help world peace and all that. Jeez. And also, you're going to be taught all this really interesting stuff that is this trade craft, kind of interesting stuff. Now, it's like fun, exciting, different world. So you're there on that stage. But, but, no crisis lasts forever. There's going to come a time in a month or two or three when you're going to wake up one morning and the things that was, you thought were crises are kind of quieted down. And you say to yourself, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And you realize, oh, this is not a good situation that I put myself in. But how do I fix that? You're thinking, well, gee, maybe if I go to my handler, my KGB handler, and I say, you know, I, I really made a big mistake, and I don't know what I was thinking. I, you're a very nice guy, but um, <laughs> is it possible that, you know, that ain't going to happen? It's like going to a Mafia Don who did you a favor eight years ago and now wants you to pay him back. So, no, you're not doing that with the Mafia Don either. All right, you'll do the right thing. You will turn yourself into security. Tell them what happened. Say you made a terrible mistake. Yeah, a lapse of judgment. And they'll take you back in. And Oh, they're not going to do that. I call that sharks in the shark tank. Sharks, they can swim with each other nicely. One gets nicked, starts to bleed, they'll turn on him like prey. Has that happened to people in the IC that I've met? Yes. More than you would think. I've, heard, I've talked to some very sad and unhappy people that crossed just a little bit over, not a lot, tried to do the right thing, wrecks the career. Bad things happen. And that gets added into the corridor. So it's not like people don't know that. So what do we have netting it out? You discover when you come out of the euphoria stage that you are actually stuck and trapped. Now that's not very nice. 
Because that's robbing you of being the captain of your own life. What are you going to do with that? You don't know what to do. You do not know what to do. So you just resign yourself to just doing the job of being a spy. You've got to do your regular job, and then there's something that they call spook hours, some people, which is it's at night, when you got to do your other things that belong to tradecraft world. At first, it used to be fun and interesting, but now it's drudgery. I mean, to make, uh, you've got to shrug off surveillance, it could take you two or three hours, then you get to some cold, wet drop side, and you read the instructions on these things, they go on for pages, but just one, one of them. It's not so fun anymore. And you have a few other things on your plate. What? You have the worst mental state that people know about, human beings. Uncertainty. If you have bad news come on you, it'll slam you, you'll be on the ground for a while, but eventually you'll dust yourself off, get up, figure out, all right, now what do I do? And you try to figure out a plan. But with uncertainty, you cannot do that. You don't know what to do because you don't have enough information. It's a constant state of uncertainty. I know that from my practice is the worst state for anybody to be in. And you're paranoid because you don't know when there'll be a knock on the door and they found you. Oh, but you're going to get around that because you'll be brilliant with your tradecraft. You're not that brilliant. Because there's the dirty little secret in the field of the intelligence world, which is almost no major spies were caught through detection. They were caught when somebody from the other side KGB guy got sick and tired of borscht for lunch every day <laughs> and wanted a Big Mac, comes over to our side, but to prove his bona fides, he's got to bring over gifts, the names of people that he knows about. And it doesn't matter how good your tradecraft is, because when that happens, you're toast. And you kind of learn that, because you're a real student of these things if you're a spy, because your life depends upon it. So, you just are stuck because you don't know what else to do. Now, there are theories about spies. You read all the words, you know, narcissistic, and angry, and <coughs> blah, blah, blah. And evil, too, mind you. But wait a minute. How come virtually every spy that I know about goes into a state of dormancy? Dormancy. They quit doing it. Why? I asked Earl Pitts about this. They were hoping, dreaming of being out of that life. They could imagine it and they thought, well, how can I become less useful and valuable? I know what I'll do. This is Earl Pitts talking to me. <coughs> He'll take articles in Newsweek magazine and just change a few words and hand them in as his 
his product that he's bringing in. And he was thinking, he does that for long enough, then they'll begin to think of him as kind of like useless and not very helpful, and kind of, he'll go off the radar screen, and then he'll be okay. That's a wishful thought. But I believe that nearly all spies, including the other two that I work with, Robert Hansen and Brian Regan, had periods of dormancy when they were dreaming about this relief from the uncertainty and the terror and all the other things that I've been talking about. But then the chain can be yanked again, and then they'll have to do it again because the handler figures out some other thing he needs. Then the eighth stage is the pre-arrest stage. I, get, I made it into a stage because I found it very interesting. Because, of course, now the Bureau knows about it, and they're doing these bad things, and they're being very clever. They put cameras in the ceiling, and they have you under surveillance, and you can't pick up on it, and they're just trying to catch you in the act of all this. And they notice some of your tradecraft is really slipshod, and they laugh at it. You really are taken in by that? They know what's going on. They're not stupid. They're thinking, I just want to get this over with. Come on, just get this over with. So they don't care about their tradecraft so much. And then comes the arrest, and they come out with snarky, horrible comments. Like Robin Hanselwood said, what took you so long? And you want to whack him across the face for being such a, a crappy guy. It's kind of like um, a teenager getting caught with too many miles on the odometer by dad the next morning. And it's sort of strengthens the idea of the supposed psychology of the insider spy, when in fact, guess what's happened here? He had his first failure that he couldn't navigate his life, and that pushed him to seek a crazy solution of crossing the line. First failure. Second failure is that he discovers after he's crossed the line that he's stuck like a, a, a bug with a pin. He's not really running his life anymore. Third failure, he couldn't even be a good spy, he was caught. So you got three failures. Now, there's something really important about stage five, which was the morning after stage. <coughs> I gave it a term called convergence. Convergence. What does that mean? It means, I don't care what led anybody to become a spy in the first place. Once they get into stage five, and they've woken up to the situation that they're now stuck with, they become psychologically extremely similar. It, I, I hate to give you these kinds of parallels, but if, sadly, you wind up getting a diagnosis of cancer, I don't care what your profession is and where you are from or anything about you, I know that you are in a state of terror. 
and you cannot shake it off. And you're worried about your family, and you're worried about finances, and you're worried about a thousand things. Just like the guy in the next bed over with his diagnosis of cancer. There's a convergence that makes you very, very similar to the other people. Now, there are nice things that are converging. You buy a new blue T-bird, and all you can see on the road is that, oh, there's another one like mine. Oh, there's another one. You're in the club. That's a nice thing. But a bad thing, you're very much the same. Now, why do I highlight this? Because in laying out these stages that I've described to you, I'm building a description of what the population is that we are concerned about. And I have a thing that I do in my office and my regular practice, which is the following. <coughs> if we can precisely and accurately describe fully the nature of a problem, we are halfway to solving it. Just the description of the problem fully flesh. If we have a better idea of what goes on in the minds of spies along the movie course of their life, we're halfway to beginning to solve our problem. And one of the things that is terribly useful is the idea of convergence. Because if they're all feeling this sense of stuck, trapped, and helpless, what if we figured out a way to make them not feel that way? Would that be useful? Yeah, it would be, I thought. And that explains why I was impelled to write my second paper, my white paper called N-O-I-R, Noir. Now, of course, anybody who knows French gets the little cuteness of it. A white paper called noir, which means black in French. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I had to be a little cute. But I did it in a particular way, because I had to figure out a thing that would operate to give life to a mechanism that would work against that stuckness of a spy. I am talking about what would happen if you could build a safe, government-sanctioned, off-ramp exit for people who have crossed the line? There is nothing like that now. Nothing. And what's the price tag associated with that? Year after year, if you don't have to catch them, they just continue to just ferry over voluminous amounts of classified material to our enemies. That's good? No, that's not good. Year after year? Because they see no way out? Well, if there's a way out, would that be a benefit to our country? Yeah, I think so. Now, that implies that somebody would voluntarily turn themselves in. Hey, what do you call that? There is no word for such a thing. Because it never happens. Why doesn't it happen? For the reasons that I told you. 
through unsaved? <coughs> but if it could happen, what would you call it? Well, I had to take a word that existed and employ it that way, and I called it reconciliation. Reconciliation. Why? Well, there's so much history to that. Truth and in, uh, in reconciliation in South Africa, reconcile bills between the two houses of Congress, reconciliation with uh, marital discord, and on and on, and even in the Catholic Church now. It's a nice word. And I thought, well, that actually makes sense for a spy voluntarily turning himself in. And it was useful to me because I had to figure out, well, if I'm recommending a structure that would exist for that purpose, uh, it's not going to be a new intelligence agency because there's plenty of them. We don't need another one. It would be a, a subset of something. So I thought, all right, an office. And I had the R there for reconciliation. And I ended up also thinking, hmm, that's neat. I could make an acronym N-O-I-R, noir, in French. And even that word has a long history in the world of intelligence. Black things. In the black, when you're operating a Moscow and all this. So, and also it had the benefit of being four letters of the alphabet because no pretenses <coughs> to being a three-letter agency. No, four letters. So it's N-O-I-R. So that was the title of my paper. And what I was proposing is this government entity that would serve as a mechanism for people to turn themselves in in a safe way. Now, why would they want to do such a thing? Well, now comes the hard part. You would have to offer them something that really would make a difference in their life. And I came up with the one thing that I thought would make a difference. No jail. No jail. Every other punishment, yep. Lose your job, lose your clearance. Fines. Financial surveillance for the rest of your life so you can't squirrel anything away. May have to adopt a new identity. All kinds of bad things, name the bad things that would be punishments, that's all fine, but no jail. Now, why did I come up with that? Because of my experience with Earl Pitts, I'll tell you why. Picture this. I'm in the federal courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia, and it's his sentencing hearing. You have the people from the Department of Justice. You have the defense attorneys. They have met for, for having a negotiation as to what they're going to propose to the court of the, the how many years of jail. And they come up with it. It's roughly 23 years or so for Earl Pitts. And that's how the government operates. They do a deal. It comes before the court, and Judge Ellis has other ideas, suddenly. He puts an extra two and a half years on Earl Pitts. Just because. Just because. Well, think of the embarrassment to the, the, 
Department of Justice guy, he thought he had a deal, uh, it's his reputation. No, he is embarrassed in court. The defense side is upset. Too bad. Now, anybody reading about that who is thinking about what am I going to do with my life, knowing about such uncertainties, remember uncertainty, is going to say, you know what? I will just take my chances. I'll just take my chances. So the one thing that you've got to build into this package to make this noir thing work is no jail. Well, don't think I didn't know that people would choke on this. Oh, oh. Tell, tell my buddies in the icy world about this, and, and it's horrifying. No, they just want to kill him, not give him no jail. But now I get back to Brian Kelly and say, well, no, he didn't choke on it. It made sense to him. Here's another weird thing. Because over the years, I've networked with so many people in the IC. I know a lot of you here. And I've learned something. The one agency that I was sure would be the most hostile to my ideas would be the FBI. Hey. They are the ones that want to, they trap this guy and they want to give, throw the book at him forever. I was real worried about that. But I go to a lot of meetings of this and that, of Afio or whatever, and he, I discovered the following once I published the second paper in Noir. I would get these nice communications from these people that said, hey, this is actually a pretty good idea. And I'm thinking, how, how did I get that so wrong? And here's what I figured out, I think. When you were inside the, the Bureau, you got to go with the culture and the attitudes and the assumptions that you're a part of. You don't want to rock the boat. It, it's just like a particular kind of thinking that fits with in, inside. But you also know what I said earlier this evening which is for all of that work that you do, and it's good work, but it doesn't really produce all that much of what you want, actually. It's kind of unpredictable when somebody from the other side is going to come over with that name that you want. And if they don't come over, too bad for you. <coughs> so they know what, what's effective and what's not so effective, but they can't say when they're inside, but when they're outside and they are retired, that's a different story. And they quietly will say to me, hmm, not a bad plan. I've got many, many comments like that. So I made that second paper out there. The first stuff that I told you about, the stages, was not particularly controversial. Because it was just laying out a timeline and the movie that we call it. And in fact, what I learned to a bit of my surprise that it's gotten a lot of acceptance. Just stories that I can mention super briefly. What I learned about the IC is the following. The IC is a black hole. Things go into it and things do not come out of it. So I put out my paper, do you think I heard one word from anybody in the IC? No, I didn't hear a single word. Except, if you know anything about the physics of a black hole, 
That's true, except some energy things come out sideways. So how do I make that into a story? Here's what. I have a, an FBI guy who comes in to see me as a patient. And I tell him after the second meeting that, oh, by the way, you know, just let you know that I'm working in your field a little bit, and I wrote this paper and all that. And, oh, I'd be really interested to read it. I, I have to put him on medicine for this or that, and maybe two weeks later, he's calling to let me know how he's doing, and he says, oh, you know, by the way, um, I tried to give you a paper to the counterintelligence group, uh, but they wouldn't take it. I said, they wouldn't take it? No, they already have it. It's required reading. <laughs> oh. And that happened with the State Department and other things. And then one guy comes in and says, I think I know about your paper. I think it's up on a website. Yeah, yeah, it's on a website. It's a, it's a government website. <coughs> I say, a government website? What, what are you talking about? Said, well, just go to this uh, this uh, URL, and I think it, that's where it was. Well, I wasn't acquainted with it, but and Michelle is here. It was the NCIX website, National Counterintelligence Executive, the highest body for CI in the United States. And you go to the website back then, and you click on top issues, and then you see. Uh, inside a thread, you click there, and there's my paper posted. Did anybody <coughs> ask me to post it? No. <laughs> Did anybody tell me that it was posted? No. We could probably get him to take it down. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that way. It's funny. So it's been sort of like a subterranean influence here and there. But also in the Additionally, for, for an example, I believe at this point I have roughly 10 people who are graduate students in one place or the other in the Washington, D.C. area and some outside that have used my work in their master's theses or in major papers that they are writing. And one or two of them told me, I'd love to show it to you, but I can't, it's classified. <laughs> My work was used for their paper, but it's classified. And a guy some of you know uh, called me a few days ago. He's a very experienced counterintelligence guy from FBI, retired, author of a number of important books. And he is doing, I won't say who he's studying, because that's for him to say. But he said, I've read your stuff, and this particular guy, a very important history of intelligence, follows your outline point for point, is what he said. I want to meet with you for lunch and go over my material with you. And I'm going to do that on Tuesday, this next week. So I've got an acceptance for the basic uh, paper, The True Psychology of the Insider Spy, but my NOIR project is much more controversial, as you can understand. That's a slow sale. It's a long game. I do not expect anything to happen rapidly. But I'm getting indicators that more and more people are buying into it, and that's what I have to go for. And in the interim, as you may know, just from tonight, but in other settings, 
I've given, I have to say, countless lectures to undergraduates, to graduates in law schools and in, uh, other graduate programs on my work because that's the rising generation. And I figure if they, you know, absorb it and make sense to them, that eventually, eventually, maybe policy will change on that. Now I'm going to finish up with a short description of what my third white paper is all about. And it's called Prevention, the Missing Link and the Imagine <coughs> of Insider Threat in the Intelligence Community. Now why do I call it that? My subheadings on the cover say three lines. First line. Counterintelligence is the stepchild of the intelligence community. Oh, yes, it is. We all know that. Prevention is the stepchild of counterintelligence because hardly any energy, effort, or resources flows in that direction in a way that I deem to be useful. Third line detection gets all the love. Because that's where all of the thought and resources go. Now, that's not a big surprise. There's reasons for that. Number one, people in the IC have kind of like a, a bureau mindset, a law enforcement mindset. You want to find the bad guy after he crosses the line and shut him down. That's what you live for. You're a hunter. And also, the culture of Washington figures in. What is Washington? There's the federal government, and around it, there are the Beltway Bandits. A million of them. And they can, using high-tech concepts, come up with a, a program, a plan, that monetizes the problem. They make a lot of money coming up with these ideas. All kinds of clever things, I must say. Some of them are actually pretty bright, I have to say. But there's a problem here. This is after the fact, and is doing nothing to keep the thing from happening in the first place. Take a whistleblower, for example. Of what use is detection technology? Like a Snowden or a man. One day they decide to spill it all out, and it's done, it's all over. What good is your, your detection at that point? Nothing. But in a regular spy, you know, the one that is a state sponsor, you're going to maybe catch a few, but wait a minute, you're not that smart. All the people that build these high-tech things, they're, they're brilliant people, mind you, but they're not omniscient. And do we know about that, do we? Do you know of any system ever that seems to work 100% all the time? Microsoft, for years and years, was a leader in the field of computers, and it, yeah, it was a standing joke that there was nothing that they built that wasn't penetrated by somebody. So um, what I'm saying is that that's good stuff, it's got to be done. I know it, but the idea that you can put all your bets on that one idea is, is missing the boat. It's a misallocation of resources 
to not think about what can you do to keep it from happening beforehand. Before it's the problem. Now, I'm not saying nothing's being done. Remember, Judy's mom worked for EAP. She set it up there at CIA. But here's what I also know, because I've been around long enough, is that she set up what I would call firewalls between her office and the security and CI side. Why? Because she knew, she was smart that if somebody came in and suspected that everything that they would unload to a counselor would right away go to the security department, they were finished. So she tried to do that. And I think she did a fair job of it. But over the years, you know, she retired many years ago, and what, what I've heard is that that kind of care has slipped away. And it's sort of understandable why that would be, but that's what's happened. And what does that mean? I, got, I mentioned to you before corridor reputation. If in the corridor people know that you go there and you're toast, they're not going there. I invented three classifications for people with problems. Class A, <coughs> humdrum, routine, things that we all know about, the financial illness, this, that, the other, kid having trouble, and, and you want to uh, deal with that. Fine. Class B are the ones that don't want to go, but their manager says, you got to go. So they'll show up. Class C are the ones with really big trouble. That if they said one word about it over there, they're, they're finished. And they have the ability to hide it. They won't go. And those are the problem people. So I liken it to the medical world where you have these dock in a box places that you see in strip malls where you have some problem that's kind of light or medium. You can go there, get some help. But if you have a major, really life-threatening thing, they can't help you. You've got to go to a real emergency room. There are no emergency rooms for dealing with trouble I see employees that they consider to be safe. So I propose in my paper the development of a two-tier model of EAPs, an employee assistance program, one that's inside the agency, it'll work for many, but then one outside the agency that can be the hot potato place, where it's enough separated from the agency where it's regarded as safer, and going to do a better job of these sorts of things. That was one of my proposals. The other proposal that's important is redefining the, what, meaning, what a spy means. Right now, he's a badass guy. Evil, no good, rotten, nasty, all the rest. That's, it's true, but what else is missing? He's a sad sack, loser, lonely, feeling like a failure guy. That's not out there like it should be. Why is that important? It changes the cultural take on who these people are and makes them much less interesting to want to cross the line. Because remember pride and ego. A guy, yeah, has the idea that he likes to get back at the bad people that did him poorly, 
But then he thinks, gee, I don't want everybody to think that I'm a loser. Because if they find out that I became a spy, everybody now knows that means I'm a loser. No, 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 I, I'm going to try some, something else. I have more things in that paper, but I'm not going to go into them right now. The papers are now posted on our website, and I recommend that you take a peek over there. It's simple enough. It's N-O-I-R, then the number 4, USA.org. All my papers are posted for free as PDFs, but you can now get them in a hard copy version on Amazon for very little money. We just make it easy to get. And the latest version, just to mention it for those who don't know, is that I, uh, there are two separate versions, one of uh, the first and second paper combined, then the third paper, and now there's one that's a compilation of all three available on Amazon. So, um, I reviewed how my thinking evolved and changed over time. I am not saying to you that everything that I'm proposing is perfect or sure, but it's a, a way of rethinking the problem. And I really believe sooner or later my NOR idea will get to some acceptance. And one of the little proofs of it is the following. I get a phone call about a year ago or whatever from a guy who's from a TV network. Svezda. Who knows Russian? Svezda. It means star. But who owns Svezda? Defense Ministry of Russia. Very nice guy. He would like to interview me because they have similar problems in Russia. And they would like some guidance on this and that and the other. And I just hear the phone message and I say, I don't think so. And two days later, another call, still very nice. By the fifth call, he sounded like from the guy from Barish and Natasha in Rocky and Bullwinkle. You know, a, real, a thuggish kind of a real getting angry dude. And I'm thinking, hey, if GRU is interested in my stuff, my stuff could be good. <laughs> and then last, the quote from Winston Churchill. He said, Americans can always be counted to do the right thing after they tried all the other possibilities. <laughs> so thank you for your attention, and we'll spend just a few minutes on some questions if there are any. Um, David, fascinating um, lecture. Thank you so much. Um, I was wondering if you could, if you thought about whether or not, or how far your uh, analysis scales. And by that I mean thinking about the ideological spies, the Rosenberg, Sobel, Algeris, etc. from prior times. More recently uh, um, we had the uh, uh, woman over at DIA, um, Kendall Myers at State. Um, do those categories and do those phases apply in that circumstance as well? Or is that sort of fall into a separate, a separate bucket? That's an excellent question, and you're partly right and partly wrong. Here's how. When I've studied all these cases, so much of what I lay out in the early stages is very similar 
to what I have described. That is to say, the things that tip people over. They may put on an ideological cast to it, but they're human beings that had other reasons for moving in a particular direction. But the way you're very proud is, and I should have said this, is that all my work has been done with Americans in this time frame. I do not claim that when you go back to the 30s and the 40s, that this psychology was the predominating one. We all know, we call it ideological uh, spies. Now, there, there's still a few here and there, or at least they, they, they brag about it, let's say. But even with them, I'd have to say, you'd have to look at that deeper psychology. But I'm not saying that people in other countries are exactly wired this way either. Partly, yeah. Partly, they have their own culture and their own life. And I don't want to overclaim. But I'm an American trying to help our country deal with what we've got here. Thank you. Yeah, Michelle. Something I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. Are you alone? working in this area in your profession, Dave? Or are there others out there looking at the psychology of insider spies? Have you, for instance, submitted your work to peer review because there are, there are other psychologists, psychiatrists who are working in this area that could give you some, some comment on that? Is this accepted in the profession, or are you, are you, are you a maverick? Or yeah, I'm a bit of a maverick, okay. and I should have mentioned one other thing. Uh, that was key to all of my experience, and it's a single word, access, access. Well, what does that mean? You can be a, a great mental health professional, but if you do not have access to the spies, you ain't learning all this stuff. And it, I fell into the access in an accidental way. So I'm not even claiming that everything I put together couldn't have been put together by other people in my field, except they didn't have the opportunity because they didn't have the access. So there's very few people, and as near as I know, uh, this may sound braggy, I guess it is, I'm the only one that I personally know of that had this kind of an experience to meet on an extended fashion with captured spies in any country ever. I'm the only one that I know of. Now, I've read stuff that's kind of smart and um, theoretical, and there's been tons of people studying this. Like, it goes back to Perserec, uh, to name one thing, and Slammer, and all that, all these studies. I have email relationships with people that were instrumental in those things, by the way. Um, but they were limited by what was available to do at that time, and a lot of that stuff was typical psychological studies where they would meet for a little while and they check off checklists and all that. And what made my experience different was actually doing what I do in my office, which is building a relationship that allows all this stuff to come out in a more natural human, human way rather than a, a, a very academic fashion. So I'm a bit of a loner that way, but, um, but there's enough overlaps with some kinds of people where I can explain what I do and they nod their head. Good question. Yeah, in the back? Last question. Oh, okay. Yeah, Thank all right. You, sir. Um, I want to ask, sir, if you can talk about more of a doctor's perspective on this. You say you've worked with a lot of people who, uh, who work in this field. Um, and what advice do you have for, the, for young 
uh, CI officers uh, for their mental health because there's a lot of mental stress that comes from working in a business. You're suspecting your own colleagues. You've got risk. You've got you know security clearances. How do you recommend dealing with mental health struggles? Well, that is so interesting because it, it fits with one last thing that any I wanted to say, and it's the following. In my third paper, I come up with a bunch of recommendations, but what was interesting when I sent it out to various readers, I got all kinds of reactions, negative, positive, this and that. But what was most interesting to me was when one uh, duo that were rather critical, and then they went on to recommend certain ideas that I hadn't thought of myself. Now, why was I happy about that? Because I realized the issue is that the conversation is closed currently. People don't want to talk about what you raised. What do you do that would be effective to help out stressed, younger uh, intelligence officers? That where are the structures that are going to work favorably to bleed off some of the stress and strain that is not going to make you look like an idiot to your co-workers and embarrass you. Well, they aren't there. So I, was, I actually thought that my third paper, while I'm happy with it, I'm more happy with the idea that it introduces the possibility of starting conversations with people who are more plugged in, like you maybe, that could come up with new ideas that I never thought of myself that would actually work because you are embedded in the place. So, um, I don't have a quick answer because in other fields, you know, there are uh, groups that get together and, and uh, you know, interest groups and all that. But when you're in a highly structured bureaucracy like an IC agency, it, there may not be such a thing that is acceptable and therefore what do you do with it all? You don't want to let anybody see you sweat, and that is what builds up the pressure. So I'm, I'm hoping that my third paper, not so much that everything in it is accepted in terms of my recommendations, but rather that it opens up the field to start thinking about it instead of putting all the dimes and quarters into detection fancy stuff. Thank you for answering for that question.